everybody and welcome back to episode exploring the Lord of the Rings this is session number 202 of exploring the Lord of the Rings uh, as we come to a very momentous occasion in the story tonight we are going to be called before Elrond for the formation of the fellowship of the ring which is a big deal um, so uh, uh, looking forward to discussing that not sure we're gonna quite get to the uh, actual composition of the Fellowship tonight. Um, instead, we're going to be looking at Elrond's opening address to Frodo, uh, the uh, important opening exchange with Frodo, um, which uh, is one of those passages that, you know, as I look at it, as I was looking at it before class here tonight, it's um, it definitely strikes me as one of those passages that I've always kind of skimmed over. You know, it's it's uh, it's always been to me, I don't know if it has been to you, a very kind of missable passage. I think in part because I really like the part where he talks about the fellowship, right? I, I, you know, I look forward to, you know, the exchange between Frodo and Aragorn, and I look forward to the, uh, you know, the, the, of course, the exchange with Merry and Pippin uh, that comes thereafter. Um, but this intro bit with Elrond and Frodo, I think I've never really paid sufficient attention to. Uh, so I'm really looking forward to, uh, um, I'm really looking forward to discussing that with you tonight. Uh, just uh, two quick announcements and reminders before we, we begin. First is just a reminder that our fall fundraising campaign is underway at Signum University just now. Um, we have been uh, having a wonderful campaign so far. Um, we've already raised about $62,000 uh, for Signum's annual fund. That's in gifts and, and pledges over the course of the year, which is just wonderful. Um, I'm really happy about that. Thank you so much to everyone who has already donated. If you haven't made a uh, tax-deductible donation to Signum University, I urge you uh, to consider that. Uh, we're a wonderful cause to support, uh, and uh, you know both the positive things that we're trying to do, not only in higher education, but uh, across the board in increasing educational opportunities for folks. Um, but... Um, uh, uh, you know, also, of course, to help to continue to make programs like this available uh, for folks. So, uh, yes, I see Druid's, Pi Druid's Fire just posted uh, signumuniversity.org slash fund, which is our uh, uh, home for our fundraising campaign uh, this fall. So I urge you to look that up. And don't forget, we are doing our drawing. I did our first drawing last week, uh, last Wednesday. And we're doing our second drawing tomorrow night uh, at the, the beginning of the Nature of Middle Earth class, um, and the winner for everyone who has made a donation during the course of this week. So if you donate tonight or tomorrow, you'll still be in time uh, to get into this week's drawing. Uh, and the winner uh, receives uh, their choice of either um, a free month of our Signum Academy clubs, a free course in our Signum Path uh, professional development program, a uh, an, an anytime audit, um, uh, an anytime audit registration, 
uh, for one of our graduate courses, or uh, you can get one of our brand new space modules in our space program. Um, that is the Signum Portals for Adult Continuing Education, our con continuing education program, which is going to be launching in just a couple months. And if you would like more information about that and to learn more about the kinds of things we're going to be offering through that, you should come to the State of the University Address, which will be happening on October 16th at our uh, campaign ending webathon event. Um, so that's going to be starting at 2 p.m. Eastern Time on uh, on the 16th of October. But also prior to that is a Saturday. Yes, Saturday is uh, Saturday the 16th. Um, but prior to that, um, we have another event that's happening even before that, and that is Middle Mood, our second regional mood of the year, is happening this very weekend out in Waterloo, Iowa. Um, uh, Middle Mood, you can either come uh, and join us out in Iowa, uh, as many have, and that will be really great. Um, uh, Mike Drought is going to be there giving the keynote uh, talk on uh, on philology, so it's going to be, uh, and that's always great. Mike Drought is uh, 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 totally worth the cost of admission all by himself. Um, but of course, you can also attend virtually. And if you attend, um, uh, if you attend remotely, um, then uh, you will also get an archive, uh, you know, recording of all the presentations as well. Um, so you could even attend asynchronously if you wanted to. Just sign up for digital attendance uh, at the Moot. Uh, and you will be able to get that too. So, exactly, Jordan. Words, words, words is absolutely the theme um, of um, of uh, Middlemoot this year. Uh, so. I hope that many of you will be able to join us at Middlemoot. Uh, you can go there to the link that was just posted uh, in uh, Discord uh, and in the Twitch chat as well. Um, just go to uh, signumuniversity.org slash events and you'll be able to find a link to uh, the Middlemoot registration page. So I hope you'll be able to join us. It's going to be a lot of fun. I can't wait to get out. It's going to be my first, you know, it's our second regional moot of the year. It's my first uh, moot traveling of the year. I, uh, of course... It's uh, the first one was in my home state uh, of New Hampshire. So um, I'm actually going to be uh, flying out to Iowa for this one. And uh, I have uh, uh, really missed being able to go around uh, to be able to go around the country and uh, connect with folks again. Uh, so that's going to be a lot of fun. So um, with that. Let us get back into the text. Oh, hey, James, I see you on uh, YouTube there. Welcome. Glad you could join us here live for the first time. Um, that's really fun. Um, all right. So, Elrond's foresight. Elrond summoned the hobbits to him. He looked gravely at Frodo. The time has come, he said. If the ring is to set out, it must go soon. But those who go with it must not count on their errand being aided by war or force. They must pass into the domain of the enemy, far from aid. Do you still hold to your word, Frodo, that you will be the ring-bearer? I do, said Frodo. I will go with Sam. Then I cannot help you much, not even with counsel, said Elrond. I can foresee very little of your road, and how your task is to be achieved I do not know. The shadow has crept now to the feet of the mountains, and draws nigh even to the borders of the Grey Flood, and under the shadow all is dark to me. You will meet many foes, some open and some disguised, and you may find friends upon your way when you least look for it. I will send out messages, such as I can contrive, to those whom I know in the wide world, 
but so perilous are the lands now become that some may well miscarry or come no quicker than you yourself. All right. Okay, so first, there are, so there are two major things uh, that we see happening in this passage, right? Um, the second passage is focused on Elrond giving advice, which seems to be, based on his own words here, based on his foresight, which is really interesting, right? Um, but we'll get to that because that's not where we start. We don't want to miss what happens at the beginning. Um, what happens at the beginning is his, um, exactly, Aranas, a third opt-in for Frodo uh, is exactly um, is exactly right. Um, he presses Frodo to reaffirm his decision, right? His choice to take the ring. Um, so let's look exactly at how this goes. First of all, um, he begins, he summons the hobbits to him, right? So this is a, this is sort of a formal occasion, right? This is not, you know, Elrond passed them in the hall. This is not, you know, they happen to run into, run into each other down by the squash courts. This is, this is, this is an audience, right? Before Elrond, he makes it a formal occasion. And then he's looking gravely at Frodo and addressing him personally. This is, this is about Frodo, right? Although he's, though, notice he has, um, summoned all of the uh, hobbits to him, right? Um, that's one thing that I never really noticed before. Um, we will see, little mini-spoiler, right, into the very near future, um, that Elrond is going to be initially resistant to the idea of Merry and Pippin going with them. Um, but he has summoned all of the hobbits to him, right? So Merry and Pippin get an invitation to this Sit down, right? Um, and I think that that's, that's interesting. Now, I, I think we can see the explanation for that in what he's going to go on to say. Um, that is, he, I, I think, had in mind some other things to say to Merry and Pippin, right? Um, which, in the end, is not going to work out the way that Elrond has planned. So his foresight is going to be failing him all over the place uh, from pretty early on here today. Um, but... Um, uh, but it is interesting that he has, so he, you know, he's, he's not like talking to them separately. He's not just like, so Frodo, you know, I, I come, you know, I need to talk to Frodo and, uh, oh yeah, Mary and Pippin, I'll talk to you. I have another thing to talk to you about some other time later. Like that's not how he, uh, thinks about it. Um, he's, uh, he's bringing them all, he's bringing them all in front of them and in their presence, looking gravely at Frodo and doing this final what exactly? Charge? The time has come. If the ring is to set out, it must go soon. If the ring is to set out, didn't we? Uh, you know, it it uh, uh, you know makes me think of Pippin's words at the beginning of this chapter, right? Then what were you all doing? You were shut up in there for hours, right? Like, what on earth did we have that whole council about if we're going to start this sentence with if, right? Didn't we go over this, Elrond? Like, we'd pretty much decided that the ring not setting out is a bad idea, right? Um, but uh, exactly, Nathan the Wrong says, didn't we spend 50 episodes on that if? Yeah, we kind of did. We kind of did. Um, but... Um, 
but yeah, I think um, you know, interesting. Admiral Malcontent says maybe it's like a um, like a notary thing where Elrond needs witnesses. Uh, maybe, maybe. Um, uh, yeah. Now I agree, JJ. It doesn't necessarily mean that he's implying doubt. You know, if it is to set out, um, it, it is an, an if-then statement. He doesn't say then explicitly, but the then is implied, right? If the ring is to set out, then it must go soon, right? Um, so I agree with that. Um, but um, uh, yes, yes. Um, but I still say, actually, that there is some, n- not doubt. I'm not saying that Elrond is questioning the conclusion of it, uh, the conclusion of the council, right? Um, uh what he is saying, though, I think, is if the ring does not set out soon, then it can't set out. Um, it is, if we wait any longer, it will be too late. Um, it will be too dangerous to set out. Now, why exactly? Given what we learned from the scouts, things are all clear, right? Um uh, but uh, apparently he has reason to think that that isn't the case or that again, something is changing or going to be changing. And I, maybe we'll get back to uh, get back soon to what it is he's sort of pointing to there. Um, but um, anyway, if the ring is to set out, it must go soon. Um, and notice how neutral he's being there. He doesn't say the time has come. If you are to set out with the ring, you must go soon. He could very well say that. Frodo has signed up for this, right? But he doesn't say that. He uh, he's still lead, he's being very careful, right? The ring has to go. Right? There's a plan for the ring to make its way to Mordor, and somebody has to take it. But I'm not naming names yet, right? If the ring is to set out, it must go soon. But those who go with it must not count on their errand. And again. Look how vague he's being. He's not implicating Frodo at all here, right? Um, and also notice the um, indirect connection, right? Those who go with it. Um, there will be, so, you know, the ring is headed to Mordor, and there will be other people who will be going in its company. But, you know, it's not more intimate. The ring is not more intimately connected with them than that, right? They're going. They're, they're just. They're, they're just going in the same direction, right? Uh, the company that's going to set out and the ring. Um, uh, yeah. So, um, uh, <laughs> Red Drowsnake says, if this chapter's name is to be accurate, it must go soon. Uh, yes. Yes. Um, so again, he's declaring like what the council has agreed. Right. You know, he's kind of reminding everybody right of what is supposed to happen, but he's doing so in extremely, I would almost say forcedly neutral terms. Right. I mean, that's that's a, those who go with it. Uh, you know, the ring is to set out and those who go with it like he couldn't he, he could scarcely be more indirect than that. Right. Um, less uh, pointed in the way that he's describing that. Um but notice he has given a confirmation of something that was unclear, at least to Sam. Remember when Sam jumps up at the end of the council, um, you know, one of the things we were discussing then was the um, the extent to which he was wondering whether or not 
you know, he seemed to be legitimately concerned, um, given all the talk about small hands and and uh, uh, the weak being able to succeed as well as the strong, um, that uh, he, Elrond, was literally planning to send Frodo completely by himself. And so that overcomes Sam's reserve and propriety enough for him to jump up and, and speak his mind and volunteer. Um, but... Um, and remember that there was speculation, right, um, that Elrond would send a fair number when it came to it. But it, that was never been confirmed, right? So the one piece of information that Elrond is kind of dropping here is that there is going to be a plurality of people. Now, it's theoretically possible that he could still just be indirectly referring uh, to Frodo and Sam. But I think, again, I think in the context of that earlier conversation, when Bilbo was opining that they would send a fair number... Um, uh, I think it's he's he seems to be pointing to a larger body here. Those who go with it must not count on their errand being aided by war or force. So that's a kind of a good news, bad news situation, right? On the one hand, um, whoever accompanies the ring, right, is uh, is they're not going to be completely on their own, but at the same time, they're not going to be getting what might be called backup either, right? There's not going to be war or force that's coming, you know, there's there's not going to be a uh, an attack squadron that's going with them, right? There's not going to be um, there's not going to be an attack. Um, no one's going to lead an assault force against Mordor or something. Because, um, I mean, everybody knows that would be pretty foolish. Um, so, yeah, that's not going to happen. Um, they must pass into the domain of the enemy far from aid. Do you still hold to your word, Frodo, that you will be the ring bearer? Now let's let's think a little bit about um, uh, let's think a little bit about how he is framing that question. Um, yeah, now for, for Thoughtless says, in fairness, Elrond didn't say it won't happen, just that they can't count on it. Yes, they must not count on their errand being aided by war or force. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, that's a perfectly fair point. Um, do you still hold to your word, Frodo, that you will be the ring bearer? So first half of that question. He does now come around. You know, he doesn't ask Frodo to volunteer again from scratch. Right. He does come around to reminding Frodo that he did, in fact, <laughs> volunteer. Right. Um, do you still hold to your word? So you have given your word, Frodo. Um it's a it's a balance, right? On the one hand, he's reminding him of his promise, and yet he's also speaking of it as if the promise hasn't been given, right? As if he's not counting on it, right? As if he's not assuming it. Um, he's asking him to affirm his word. And then what is it exactly? Yeah, Sarah, I think that's actually a good point. It's more of an opt-out than an opt-in at this point. He's already opted in. Exactly. Uh, and you've made um, you've made this point. Um, do you hold to it? Um, and I agree. I think that he he is right. Kurtzimus, exactly. I don't think that's what he means. I don't think he's saying, were you lying earlier when you said you would go? Um, he's giving him a chance to change his mind. This is a chance to back out. And I think it's a legitimate chance to back out. Um, I think it's a real chance to back out. Um, do you still hold to your word that you will be the ring bearer? And Frodo says, I do. 
Yeah. Now, Nathan, if he says no, I don't know. I don't know. Um, uh, what what happens? Not sure. Is that, do we have to we have to wump up a second council? Um, I, do they go into executive session? I'm not really sure. Um, uh, yeah, Drowsnake suggests. All right, Sam, you're up. Possibly. The transition from there is really interesting, right? He says, then I cannot help you much, not even with counsel. Then I cannot help you much. Could he have helped him more if he'd said no? Right? I mean, I don't think so. I don't think that's what he's implying. You know, do you still deal with George? Actually, nah, never mind. I'm out. I, I, I changed my mind. I'm not going. Right. Well, in that case, then I have a great deal of constructive advice. For, then I can tell you what you can do. Right. Um, I, I am not um, uh, I'm not at all sure. Um, maybe he was. Yeah. Help him reconsider. Perhaps. Uh, perhaps he was. Um, uh, he was. You know, prepared with arguments to try to sway Frodo. But I doubt it. Like, we've not seen anyone do that. We've seen both Elrond and Gandalf, now Elrond twice and Gandalf once, um, go way out of their way to um, let, not just let Frodo make a choice, but to let Frodo make a free choice. I was just reflecting on this again. Um, I've been reading kind of slowly the uh, uh, just a bit a day, the new Andy Serkis Lord of the Rings reading um, of which I'm not a mammoth fan, but I mean, it's fine. It's fine. But it's uh, it's uh, it's fine. But anyway, uh, I've, I've been I've been listening to it and um, I was just I just recently this past week reread uh, Shadow of the Past and Three's Company. And it just really struck me again in the context of what we've been discussing here at the end of the council, um, how far out of his way Gandalf goes um, that the passage that really jumped out at me, the lines that really jumped out at me again on this this latest reading through, um, was Gandalf just egregiously saying to Frodo there in Bag End, back in the show, you know, well, have you decided what to do? Remember that passage? You know, have you decided what to do? Like, he, he leaves as if, like, it's just, like, out of nowhere, Frodo, like, okay, brainstorm Frodo and figure out what you have to do. I mean... He's made it pretty clear what needs to happen. And then he backs up, right? Um, backs way far and just says, okay, uh, you, um, it's your job to decide on a plan, right? You tell me what you think you should do. Um, and, uh, and, and he's, you know, and he, and Frodo makes it, well, I guess, you know, I ought to take the ring and guard it. And I guess I got to leave the Shire, right? So, you know, Frodo, he, he lets Frodo come to those to see what needs to happen and to come to those decisions himself. You know, does he lead him along the way? Does he point him in that direction? Sure, he definitely does. Um, but, um, uh, but yes, um, we see Elrond, we see Gandalf doing it that once. We've seen Elrond now doing it twice, making sure that Frodo has this option to not only sort of independently affirm his choice, but to say it, right, to declare it out loud in front of witnesses, right? The first time with Gandalf, well, there is a witness, right, um, uh, squatting under the windowsill 
it turns out. Um, but um, uh, but here, you know, with Elrond, both of these times, it has been public. Um, uh, <laughs> yeah, you're right, Nancy, that the Socratic method has indeed been around for a very long time. Yeah. Um, uh, yes. Yes. Good. Um, good. Yeah, and that's interesting, Jackie. I think that's a really interesting um, point, that Elrond did this with Isildur, too. Yes. Yes. Um, Isildur made his choice. And even if Elrond thought it was the wrong choice, uh, it would have been wronger <laughs> for him uh, to attempt, you know, for good reasons, you know, uh, for a good end, um, a, a Smeagol solution to the problem, right? Well, what's he going to do? Strangle Isildur and take the ram? We've talked about this. Um, I don't know how that would have turned out really badly, but I'm sure it would have turned out very, very badly. Um, but um, anyway, yeah. So I think that that's very, I, I, I think it's a very good point. Um and Valoria, I do think that that's interesting, that um, having the other hobbits, having his own friends there as witnesses, um, it's not just repeating the same pledge to the same group of people. Um, he is saying it now in front of Merry and Pippin as well, which is, I think, you know, perhaps also meaningful for um, for for Frodo as well. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, and Elrond does generally seem to have um, respect for will and choice. I totally agree. Um, and Jordan, I agree, not only is it also in front of these other witnesses, but there's also, this is more This is more private, right? This is not the performance on the public stage that Frodo's declaration in the council was. Um, more privately, with his friends there to support him, he could still say no. Right, he could still back out. Um, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Um, and Jackie, that is a, another really interesting point. She says it makes me wonder about the hunt for Gollum and his imprisonment in Mirkwood, held against his will, very out of character for Gandalf uh, and Aragorn. Not to mention the whole uh, torturing him to get him to talk thing. Um, um, at least putting the fear of fire in him, um, uh, which Gandalf confesses to having done. Yeah, no, it's a big deal. Um, it's a big deal. Uh, that is um, um, touch and go, as Gandalf might say. Um, you're right now imp imprisoning people against their will. is not out of character for the Mirkwood elves. Maybe that's why Aragorn Tom Sawyered him into doing it for him. I don't know. <laughs> but, um, uh, uh, but, um, uh, but yeah, I mean, Gandalf emphasizes how important it was, but I don't think, I don't think it's a small point. I don't think that it's immaterial. The question of, what did they do to Gollum and how did they treat Gollum um, is um, not irrelevant at all for exactly this reason. I mean, when you start, you know, torturing folks to get the true story out of them, 
um, because it, there's re- it's really important and there's a very good reason why you need to know, you know, that's 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 the first step down the road. Right. That's uh, that's uh, I, no doubt. Uh, Saruman said something very similar to himself uh, at the beginning of his road. Um, uh, so, yeah, absolutely. Um, it is kind of a big deal. And it's one of the reasons I think that the escape of Gollum is actually important. Right. And not just the escape of Gollum, the um, the overkindliness of the elves. Right. Um, it's actually a good thing. It's like a good sign that he escapes because they were being over generous, because they were considering his good, right? They didn't want him. It's not just that they didn't want him to suffer physically. Um, it's that they didn't want him to suffer. They were thinking of his well-being in a really broad kind of way, right? It wasn't good for him to be kept cooped up in the dark, not just physically, but emotionally and spiritually. It wasn't good for him, right? Um, and so the fact that that consideration of him led to his escape is kind of um, in line with, kind of uh, echoes Bilbo's own pity for him, enabling him to run free and to do um, uh, to do his... Uh, you know, to go on and, and, I mean, like, remember the whole, it was a pity Bilbo didn't stab the vile creature when he had a chance conversation, right? Yeah, Bilbo's killing Gollum would have prevented Gollum betraying the Shire and Baggins to, uh, not to mention the existence of the one, you know, the, 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 the presence and for a long time location of the one ring to Sauron. Um, and so it seems like it would have been much better had that not happened. Right. Um, and it might seem so about the escape. Now, you're right. Um, uh, let's see. Who was that? Uh, Evil Dr. Cannon, that um, the dead guards, the elvish guards who were killed uh, in his escape. No, it wasn't so good for them. Right. Um, the escape, the prison break, it remains evil. Right. It's not that it was a good thing um, uh, to do. Right. Um, uh, and yet, um as we will see, evil will be good to have been, even though it remains evil. Um, yeah. Um, anyway, okay. But I don't want to get more distracted thinking back about uh, Gollum uh, and his interrogation. Um, but um, back to the fondness for and protection of free will and free choice here. But again, especially important here. And again, it's let's also look at what he is asking him to sign up to do. And this is going to be important later, I think. This is something we're going to want to keep track of as we go through the rest of the story. What exactly is Frodo under bond to do? This is the moment when he's being officially um, charged, right? When he is taking the errand on him. What is the errand? What is he promising to do? To be the ring bearer. Exactly. To be the ring bearer. To go with the ring. To pass into the domain of the enemy far from aid. Right? Um... He is not 
he has not promised. Elrond has not made... In this moment, when he's actually asking Frodo to re-opt in, right? When he is pulling what sounds like a vow, and indeed framed... You know, Frodo speaks exactly like a wedding vow, right? I do is Frodo's response, right? Um, the vow that he makes here is just to be the ring bearer. Responsibility is not on him, is not laid upon him to destroy the ring. I'm not saying that isn't his job, because that is the job of the ring bearer, right? The ring has to go to the fire. That's where he needs to bear the ring. But that's his job. His job is what he has sworn to do is to be the ring bearer. Green Great Dragon, that's exactly what I was just, the thought that just crossed my own mind as well. So Frodo didn't fail. Frodo did exactly what he promised to do. What he promised to do was to be the ring bearer and to bring the ring to the cracks of doom. And he's going to do that. He's going to do that. What happens after? As we'll see, not in his hands. Not in his hands. Um, And that's a way that they have been talking all along from the end of the council and onwards, right? Um, This is not... um, This is not the task. Um, Yeah, yeah. Um, Anyway, I just want to... I just want to... We'll... the day will come when we will talk more about the big question, does Frodo fail, or to what extent does he fail, or wherein lieth his failure. Um, those will be, um, those conversations will happen later. But in the meantime, I think it's important to note um, that the word that he asks, that Elrond asks Frodo to affirm, is simply that he will be the ring bearer. And the primary reason I think that this is important is that all the way through Elrond has spoken from the end of the council and on Elrond has spoken as if they know the achievement of this quest is not in their power. Um, He can't ask Frodo to promise to see the ring destroyed, no matter what. Right? That's not... um, uh, that's not what he's being asked to do. Um, he is not called, as Kurtzmas, uh, I think you were saying, he is not called the Ring Destroyer, right? That's not his title. This title, and he does. Elrond is inventing this here, right? Is 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 isn't this the first time the phrase Ring Bearer is used? That you will be the Ring Bearer. I think, I mean, it was, it came up in the council, right? Who will, who will bear it, um, was a question that was asked. Um, uh, but, um, but it's here being definitely, um, definitely formalizing it, right? And now, yes, we will, uh, Fort Thoughtless will come back to this again when we see Elrond's parting charge later on. Right. Um, he is going to have some more words to talk about this. And so we will definitely want to uh, um, return to this. Yeah, there you go. OK, excellent. Gandalf said it when Frodo was waking up. Um, 
There are many good reasons why they should. The ring is another. Uh, I am one. The ring is another. You are the ring bearer, and you are the heir of Bilbo, the ring finder. Okay. Yes. And Gandalf refers to him good. The unaccount to the ring bearer of so strange an event was required, I think. So basically, JJ, Gandalf coins the term, and Elrond here makes it a thing, right? He makes like it's it was undisputable that Frodo was in fact bearing the ring. Like he had it on himself right now, right? Um, at that time, like when he was lying there in bed, when he was at the council, he was the one who had the ring in his, um, um, in his possession. Um, uh, Maureen Fay, and welcome, by the way, um, Bilbo calls himself ring winner, if I remember correctly, in The Hobbit, in his riddling names to, uh, to, to uh, um, Smaug. Yeah, exactly. Ring winner. Uh, is what he calls calls himself, which is interesting, right? Um, uh, in context, right, of uh, Bilbo's fake story about how he got the ring. Um, but uh, ooh, hang on, I'm just like going way ahead here. That's not right. Um, uh, yeah, he says he won it, right? But anyway. Um, it's one thing to be the ring bearer, the one who has the ring, the one who has come into possession of the ring and has brought it to the council, right? To be the ring bearer from here on, the one who is going to bear the ring on the quest for Mount Doom, on you know, to, to bear the ring to the cracks of doom um, is a very different thing, right? So uh, Gandalf did invent the term, Um Elrond is kind of emphasizing how that is changing, right? Um, he may have been the one who was bearing the ring before, but now he is taking that upon himself in a much larger sense. And we will see it used from now on. We will see it used in that very portentous way. Ring bearer is now going to be a title, right? And it's going to be a very serious title um, that uh, is going to mean something. It's going to mean a lot uh, in future here. Um, Yeah, yeah. Um, Yeah, good. Okay. Second paragraph. Then I cannot help you much, not even with counsel. What a fascinating response to his effort. Well, hang on a second. We just skipped a really important sentence. I will go with Sam, says Frodo, right? I love that. I do, says Frodo, in response to the solemnity of the question, right? He asks him for a formal promise, a formal vow, and Frodo gives it to him. I do hold to my word that I will be the ring bearer. I will go with Sam. I'm going to accompany Sam, right? Um, it's not like it's a condition exactly, right? I do on condition that Sam will go with me. Um, again, I don't think that he's saying it exactly. Um, uh, yeah, Kurtzman says Sam doesn't get to opt out. Frodo doesn't need to give Sam a chance to opt out. He knows already Sam's decision. Sam has made his decision and Frodo knows it, 
right? Um, I will go with Sam. I will go with Sam. Um, the One of the ways that I read that is basically a reminder. Frodo knows he's not in this alone from the beginning, right? One of the things that I think that we can see here is exactly how much um, it meant to Frodo that Sam did jump to his feet and immediately speak up and get appointed Frodo's companion, right? Um, it helps us to see perhaps Elrond's wisdom in doing that right away, right? Um, which he didn't have to do. He could have been like, well, you know, pipe down now, little hobbit. We'll figure that out in due time, right? Um, or giving him some kind of general reassurance. Yeah, don't worry. I don't think we'll send him quite alone, but I appreciate your concern, right? He could have done something like that, but he doesn't. Instead, he immediately names Sam as his as Frodo's companion, seeing what Sam has volunteered for. But again, I think we can see here how much it means to Frodo. Um, I do hold to my word that I will be the ring bearer. I will go because Sam is coming with me, right? Um, Sam and I are going to go together. Um, there's almost... I don't want to... Um, I don't want to lean too far into this particular reading, but it's almost as if he's correcting Elrond. It's not exactly correcting him, but it's like an addendum, right? Um, yes, I hold to my word. Sam gave his word too, right? And by the way, Sam is holding to his word also. We've talked, right? Um, I know that Sam is not backing down from what he said in the council. Um, so... It is not only I who deserves credit in this moment of being the one to step forward. Sam has stepped forward, too. I'm going with Sam, right? Um, the two of us both have committed to this. Um, uh, yeah. Hathala says he almost says it before Sam can pipe in. Yeah, exactly. Um, and... Um, uh, Blood the Inspirer, I do think it's significant that Frodo says, I will go with Sam and does not say, I will take Sam with me. Yes. Um, Sam is his servant. Uh, Sam, it would be the first one to identify himself as Frodo's servant. Frodo acknowledges Sam as his servant. There's no question as to what their relationship is, right? Sam is his servant. Um, it's not like he's trying to, you know, concealed it, but there is, and so he could, well, he'd be perfectly justified as saying, like, um, I do, you know, and I'm bringing my, you know, I'm bringing my Batman with me, right? I'm bringing my, I'm bringing my, uh, uh, you know, my, my valet with me. Um, he could say that, um, or something like that, right? But he doesn't. He states it, there is a, there is a, a kind of equality with that. I will go with Sam and I are going together. Um, the two of them are a team. Um, and it's almost like, I guess, not a correction, maybe a like, let the record show that I am holding to my word and so is Sam. Sam and I both have given our word that we are going to do this and both of us are, you know, I am on his behalf reaffirming his as well, the, the, the two of us. I'm, I'm saying I do for the both of us. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, and I agree, it does, it does put them as equals in the vow. I, I, the I will go with Sam. Yes, exactly. Um, 
uh, yeah. Anyway, so I didn't want to skip that sentence. Then I cannot help you much, not even with counsel, is, I return to saying, a very strange way to respond to this vow, right? Um, you'd think, then I cannot help you much. It's the then that gets me, right? If he had just said something like, unfortunately, I can't help you much, not even with counsel, right? Um, that would be one thing. It's the then, right? Like there's a causal relationship, you know, if Frodo says I do, then Elrond can't help him much. Um, and that's the the part that, oh, that just really strikes me about this. If you agree to do this, then, then I'm not going to be able to help you much. Surely he could help him more if he stayed in Rivendell. Someone was mentioning that earlier, and I agree. Um Interesting. Silk Weskett says maybe his only counsel would have been to take Sam. Like, I had some advice for you, which is that you should totally take Sam with you. But you've already anticipated that. So now I, I, I got nothing more. Right. That was that was it. Uh, that's funny. I like that. Um, but. Um, uh, emphasizing that Frodo was on his own to make this choice before he made the choice. Is logical, is respectful. <laughs> Emphasizing that he's on his own afterwards just seems kind of mean, right? Um, do you still hold to your word that you will be the ring bearer? I do. Then you're on your own, man. Sorry. Like, <laughs> you know, uh, good luck to you because I can't do anything for you. Um, that's why it strikes me as a slightly strange thing to do, that he would emphasize um, the extent to which he's going to be on his own because of course, and he's going to be continuing with this. Right. Um, I mean, he's following up on what he said before. You must not count those who go with it must not count on their errand being aided by war or force. It's like he's sandwiching the vow before and immediately after with no, you're going to be on your own. Um, you're, he could say, all of us who have any power for good will do everything we possibly can do to help you and support you. Um, he could he could lead with that, right? But he doesn't lead with that. Instead, he emphasizes after, just as he had done immediately before, um, you're going to be mostly on your own. Um, yeah. Um, I wonder... Uh, Rowdy Buck, that's a really interesting theory. If the then ties into Elrond's awareness of the affliction that the ring will have on its bearer, he has direct experience with Isildur of being impotent to help a ring bearer. Um, if you will be the ring bearer, then by that choice, you're at it's you're out of my hands. There's nothing I'm going to be able to do for you. Um, not just practically to help you in your quest, um, but but yeah, like your your interactions with the ring, like you've taken this on yourself. Um, you know, you heard in the council, some anyway, of what you're likely to be getting into um, if you become, the, if you agree to be the ring bearer. And nobody can help you with that. 
Um, yeah, yeah. Um, right, Lady Lakata. See, if I were Elrond, that's how I would have framed it. Right. Um, I have good news and bad news. The good news is I'll help all that I can. The bad news is there's not a lot I can do. Yeah, that's kind of how I would have framed it. Um, uh, to be, yeah, but uh, that is not how Elrond uh, frames it. Um, so what's he going to do? Immediately. He immediately sets out to help him even with counsel. I can foresee very little of your road. I can foresee very little of your road. Notice how he's transitioned into this. I can't help you much, not even with counsel. I can foresee very little of your road. On the one hand, that serves as an explanation of why he can't, like, Elrond, why do you say, oh, you're just being modest, Elrond, right? Like, I'm sure you can help quite a bit, actually. I'm sure that your counsel would actually be really helpful, so come out with it, right? Um, no, he's explaining. The reason I feel that I cannot help you much, not even with counsel, is that I can foresee very little of your road. If I could foresee more, then, you know, I would, um, I'd be able to help you more but I can't. So I can't. Right. That on the one hand, that seems to me what he's saying there. Um, but another thing is just how casually he throws that out there. I can foresee very little of your road. So first of all, exactly. Stivigans, he can foresee some of his road, right? Okay. That's something. That's that's it. And, and and first of all, can we just you know um, observe how casually Elrond goes here, right? About his foresight, he's acting like this is a thing. Not only a thing that um, uh, he should be able to do, but like that he's assuming would be asked of him, right? Like, my job at this point would be to tell you all of the things that I foresee about your road. Unfortunately, that's uh, a relatively small number of things, right? Um, but he seems to... It's just, it's just an assumed thing, right? I can foresee very little of your road. And how your task is to be achieved, I do not know. I have no idea what's going to happen. Who does? Well, and Elrond, apparently. Um, yeah, we're going <laughs> to see you guys are wanting to talk about the shadow. We're getting there. That's next. Um, uh, that's next. And as you can see from my title for the class, it's the sentence that uh, jumps out to me more than any other in this whole passage. But first about the foresight. Here's the thing that strikes me most about the way that Elrond talks about foreseeing their road. We have multiple examples of people foreseeing things in, in Middle-earth, right, in Tolkien's writings. Usually, when that happens, it happens involuntarily, right? Um... 
a foreseeing, a foresight comes upon you, right? It's like one of those things where like in a moment you suddenly, you say something um, and, you know, it turns out to be true. Um, it's like this uh, fit or with the eyes of death, green, great dragon. Yep. That's another, that's another occasion um, on which um, uh, foresight tends to come upon people. Um that's not how Elrond is talking here, right? He is not in the grip of a foreseeing or in the grip of a non-foreseeing, exactly, right? Um, he is speaking as if this is something that he would expect to be able to do, to foresee more of their road. Not just to... Um, in his wisdom and experience, be able to give them more information, right? Or make educated guesses or something like that. How your task is to be achieved, I do not know. If he had just said that, right? If this were a one-clause sentence, if he had just said, I cannot help you much, not even with counsel. How your task is to be achieved, I do not know. I would have taken him as meaning, you know, I've been brainstorming and I got nothing, right? I am really, I, I don't know how to advise you. I cannot think of a good plan, is how I would have read that. Do you see what I mean? Um, how your task is to be achieved, I do not know. I would, have, I, would have, I would have understood Elrond as saying, I don't have a plan. Um, you're going to have to wing it when you get to the cracks of doom, right? Because um, I don't know what to do. But with the first clause, I can foresee very little of your road and how your task is to be achieved, I do not know suggests to me, not that he's saying, I have not come up with any clever plans to give you, but rather, I rather expected that I might be able to tell, how the, that I might foresee how this was going to happen. Not plan, not advise, not suggest, foresee what was going to happen or what was likely to happen or something, right? And he's saying... That's what he's got nothing of, right? He's still got nothing, but it's not plans, or at least he's got not much, right? But it's not plans that he has little of. It is foresight that he has little of, and that's quite different. Um, Hathalas, it's a good question. How reliable is foresight I'm trying to think of any examples of when foresight was wrong. I can't think of any. Foresight's got a pretty good record, good track record. Now, it's not always definite, and it can sometimes mislead you if you're, say, the Witch King, for instance, and a foreseeing has come upon Gorfindel uh, that the Witch King will die at the hand of no living man. But that's about interpretation about how that's going to come through. The foreseeing turns out to be perfectly accurate, right? Um, admittedly, um, you know, a little bit cryptically because Macbethianly uh, 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 seen, but Matt Violinus, does Denethor have a foreseeing? I don't think he has a foreseeing. He has seen things in the Palantir, um, and those things are true. He doesn't see anything that's not true. Um, yeah, exactly. He predicts. He doesn't foresee. Um, 
he sees things that are happening and then he predicts that it's all going to come to ashes, that his house is going to collapse in ashes. Oops, that does come true, doesn't it? Um, but um, uh, but anyway, no, like it's again, I don't think that there's evidence that a foreseeing is upon him. Um, he sees things happening and he draws conclusions which turn out to be false conclusions from that. Um, but, um, but anyway, yeah, I can't think of any examples of when something has been foretold and not come true. Or somebody was like, a foreseeing is upon me, and then they were like, oh, yeah, my bad. I guess it wasn't. It must have just been, like, I don't know, indigestion or something like that. Um, uh, yeah. Yeah. So, so, yes. He speaks of foreseeing as if it is a thing that he can normally do. But not today. <laughs> today the van broke down. Unfortunately, um, he cannot foresee what is going you know, to... There is um, something that is inhibiting him from seeing the end of his task. Speaking of which... Um, the shadow has crept now to the feet of the mountains and draws nigh even to the borders of the gray flood. And under the shadow, all is dark to me. Sorry, Amethorn, the connection between indigestion and foresight is a medieval thing. Um, it's a question of dreams, uh, and you have some dreams because of indigestion, um, and sometimes the dream, the crazy dreams you have because of indigestion are mistaken for truth. Remember, um, Ebenezer Scrooge remembers this, right? Remember when he says to the ghost of Marley that there is more of gravy than of grave about you? Um, that's exactly the, um, the, the tradition that is still alive uh, there at the time of the writing of the Christmas Carol. Um, but, um, anyway, uh, so that, that's the connection between foresight and indigestion. I know we don't associate those two things much in, uh, uh in the modern world anymore, but, uh, uh, but they used to anyway. Okay. Um, sorry, sorry for the archaic reference. Uh, now the shadow, um, the shadow has crept now to the feet of the mountains and draws nigh even to the borders of gray flood. What on earth is he talking about? This, by the way, is the number one sentence that I think I've never really paid close enough attention to. Because this is kind of mind-blowing, right? Hang on a second. Let's... I still have the map here. Let's go back to the map. Um, look at the map here for a second. The shadow has crept to the feet of the mountains and even now approaches the gray flood. So the gray flood, here's our map. The gray flood runs diagonally southwest from Rivendell to the sea, right? It's the loud water and it joins into become the gray flood. Um, so it's, I don't understand how both of those things um, can be. Yeah, we're coming, Jordan, to that question. So I want to, I want to answer the question, what exactly is the shadow? That's my big question. But I'm trying to approach it first by trying to understand first what he says about it. Because the contextual cues will hopefully help us understand what he means by that. So, okay, he says, 
it spread to the feet of the mountains and even now approaches the gray flood, right? Okay, so the feet of which mountains? The Misty Mountains? I assume he means? And by the Gray Flood, now it's interesting that he says Gray Flood because the it's only called the Gray Flood south of the confluence of the Bruinen and the Methathel. So the, the, the River Horwell and the River Loudwater, the two rivers that they cross on the way to Rivendell, right? The first over the last bridge and then the second over the fort. Um, those are the two rivers, right? But southwest of Rivendell, they come together and form the Grey Flood, which then angles down to the southwest to the sea. Um, and it's only the Grey Flood from that confluence to the sea. Um, that is, so can I first say the most obvious thing? That's on the other side of the mountains. How can the shadow be doing both? How can it be at the feet of the mountains and also be approaching the Grey Flood? You know, how, how can it have come almost all the way up to the Grey Flood? Um, I don't understand that exactly. Um, yeah, no, I know the shadow is big, but what I'm saying is if you're at the Grey Flood, you're way past the mountains, right? I mean, it's not about the feet of the mountains. It's gone over and well past the mountains if it's gone to here, right? I mean, if we if we color this in, right, the shadow has covered... I can't imagine that it's a that it's an altitude thing. Um, ah, yes. Wraithless and Almaria are suggesting two shadows. Yeah, I like that. We've got shadow number one and proxy shadow number two. The shadow of Saruman certainly could be said to be approaching the Grey Flood. That I can easily imagine. The influence, because we know that... Um, Saruman's influence is spreading through Dunland for sure, right? Um, as he's recruiting the Dunlandings and everything. So is the Enidwyth as a whole falling under the shadow of Saruman and thereby um, Saruman, Sauron's shadow as well? That would be interesting. Whereas the straight out of Mordor shadow is come to the feet of the Misty Mountains. So yeah, uh, um, Almaria, as you were describing, a two-pronged shadow pincer movement, right, that's happening um, from Isengard and from Barad-dûr. Maybe. Maybe. Um... Maybe. Especially... Okay. Yeah, so two shadows under one shadow. Sort of. Yeah, Admiral Malkin, that's exactly what I'm picturing. Uh, a sort of a weather report green screen detailing the movements of the shadow is exactly what I'm kind of picturing here. Um... Um, but now, exactly, 
Murina, Murina Faye, I think that's exactly one of the things that I was thinking about myself. We just literally just heard um, that um, the scouts had found no servants of the enemy anywhere in any of those places that they were exploring, right? Um, so what is the shadow? Okay. Look at what he says about it. So we've, we've got the geography, and we'll come back to the geography. The shadow has crept now to the feet of the mountains, and draws nigh even to the borders of the gray flood. And under the shadow, all is dark to me. This sounds like he is not speaking metaphorically. Maybe it's metaphorical in a sense, but he's not speaking merely figuratively. By the shadow, he clearly does not mean the political influence of Sauron. That seems pretty clear to me, right? Um, you could describe the place where Sauron holds political sway as the shadow, right? And his political influence um, as the shadow, Um Conceivably, you could you could you could do that, right? But that's not what he's talking. What's what is the subject here? And what's the context? The context is his oversight. So, I, I, oversight, wrong word. Foresight. Elrond's foresight is the topic. This is all the topic sentence of this paragraph is. Then I cannot help you much, not even with counsel. And he's explaining why. He can't. So, I cannot help you much. Second sentence. I can foresee very little of your road and how your task is to be achieved. I do not know. My foresight not working. Not operable. That's why I can't help you much. Or not even with counsel. Third sentence. Why can I foresee very little of your road? Why is it that my sight is dimmed? Which normally is pretty good, to be honest. Right? But today, not working. Why isn't it working today? Answer. The shadow has crept now to the feet of the mountains and draws nigh even to the borders of the gray flood. Now, if he only, if he'd stopped the sentence there, I would have been like, okay, maybe that's not an explanation. Maybe it's a sort of a non sequitur. Maybe he's a, or leading into something else. But he then brings it explicitly back. And under the shadow, all is dark to me. I can see very little because all is dark to me. Your road, which is going to go into the shadow really soon, is dark to me. I cannot see it. I cannot foresee it because of the shadow. So there seems to be actual power. So when I said it's not metaphorical, it's metaphorical in one sense. That is a shadow, literal, a literal shadow, um, a non-metaphorical shadow would just be an absence of light, right? And it's not physically dark yet. It will be, right? The shadow is going to become literal uh, in Minas Tirith before the battle. Um, but that's not what he's referring to either, right? Um, the shadow in that sense has not yet crept to the feet of the mountains and is not yet drawing nigh to the borders of, of Greyflood, right? Um, so he's speaking, f he's speaking metaphorically, but again, I think not simply 
figuratively. He's describing something actual. Sauron has power. He is extending some kind of power which seems to have the effect of preventing Elrond's foresight. Under the shadow, all is dark to me. He can't see it. He can't see it. Yes, Elrond is indicating that Sauron is putting forth his power, his spiritual power. Yes, and J.J., I'm thinking of that Galadriel passage, too. Galadriel will also tell us that Sauron is putting forth his power and that she's resisting it, right? Yes. Yes. Um, Yes. Um, So, exactly, Ray. Um, Physically, there's no sign of the servants of the enemy. But spiritually, there is a shadow that is allowing Sauron and Saruman to block Elrond and exert some influence. Yes. Yes. That seems to be the case. And, of course, we should remember, Curthimus, exactly as you say, um, remembering what Elrond has said right now, at this date, about the shadow and how the shadow, how far the shadow has encroached, um, is going to be... Lothlorien is already an island in the shadow, right? The shadow has surrounded it and gone past it. It's crept all the way to the feet of the mountains. Right, which means Lothlorien is is whelmed or would be, if Goadriel didn't protect it. Um, so, um, yeah. So, can Elrond see Goadriel, Kurtzimus? I, I don't know. Maybe can he see her as an island within that shadow, or is does the shadow cut him off? You know, I don't know. Um, uh, yeah, I don't know. Um, we don't know. It's, it's hard to, like, I don't want to, like, literalize this too much because they don't exactly. Um, but, um, uh, yeah. Um, yeah, it's interesting. It's possible for Thomas is saying, I bet he can foresee some of what she'll do, even if they don't have a movie psychic connection. Yeah, they certainly can't get on the horn and talk to each other telepathically from across the continent. Um, that, I think, is pretty clear. Um, yeah. Oh, Ray, that is a really fascinating observation. Ray says, this may be how Saruman was able to turn to evil and not be caught. One, why did they not foresee the betrayal of Saruman? How was he able to conceal the fact that he had a not just recently begun to act by for sketchy motives? The dude has had an orc breeding process underway for years, obviously, right? Generations of mortals have been bred in his service with orcs. Right. So we're talking about, I mean, uh, yeah, it's it's been a while that Saruman has been very actively playing for the other team. Why did they not see this? Why does Mr. I can foretell the future? Not because it's under the shadow. That would be an indirect support of the two pronged shadow idea. Isengard is under the shadow, too, and is dark to him. Um, yeah. Yeah. 
Um, and now I agree, uh, Rune, that there's Saruman's own power in the in that equation as well, and I don't want to underplay that. Um, the significant hit the power of his voice in in persuading others. Um, yes, um, but again, we're not just talking about him sweet talking them in the council, right? We're talking about Elrond can foresee stuff, right? Um, not foreseeing, getting caught, Elrond being caught on the hop by uh, uh, the treason of Isengard, kind of a big deal, right? It's kind of a big deal. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Lady Lakata is pointing out that he seems to be able to tell the future, but only where bad things are not happening. It's a limitation, admittedly, admittedly. Um now, I don't know if Saruman is generating the shadow out of Isengard. He's serving the shadow. Um, is his own? Is it partly of his own making? To what extent is he complicit with it? Is he the source of it? Um, is he doing a, a you know, um, has he stolen the, you know, evil spiritual oppression technology from uh, Sauron and is uh, recreating it himself? We don't, we, we don't, we don't really know. Um but this is um, one of the one of the things which I find really interesting about Saruman and Saruman's situation is that we don't really know. We don't really know. I think it's important that we don't know where the boundaries are. That is the boundaries between what Saruman is doing himself and what Sauron is doing through him around him, you know, to him, even. Um, even he, I think, even Saruman himself doesn't actually fully know where those boundaries are, right? Um, because Gandalf, at least, is convinced that he's deluding himself to some extent about this. Um Now, look what Elrond immediately does. You will meet many foes, some open and some disguised, and you may find friends upon your way when you least look for it. What, what did he just do? He foresaw that. He's just giving him a foretelling right there. Remember, as we said before, I can foresee very little is not the same thing as foreseeing nothing, Right? He can foresee very little. He's going to give him everything he's got. He's just warning him it's not much. And he's explaining why. Right? I don't have much. Because under the shadow, all is dark to me. But I got some nuggets for you. And here they are. Uh, you will meet many foes. Some open, some disguised. And you may find friends upon your way when you least look for it. Um, so yeah, he seems to... <laughs> he seems to be foretelling things about uh, both of the sons of Denethor in that sentence, actually. Uh, foes disguised and friends when you least look for it. Um, where would Gollum fall in that, Mr. Big? I was thinking the same thing, too. Um, uh, that's a really interesting question, is it? Because he's kind of all over the place there. Um, <laughs> Gollum. Open foe? Check. Disguised foe? Check. Friend upon your way when you least look for it. Check. Yeah. No, Gollum checks all the boxes there, actually. Um, 
Uh, yeah. So, mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. Um, yeah. Um, it's interesting. Some of you seem to be resistant to the idea of Elrond having foresight, of him just being able to do this. Um, why? Why shouldn't he? He's a very great lore master. Um, this is um, this is what he does. Um, does he? Am I saying? Am I suggesting that he foresees that Boromir is going to be a disguised foe? No, no, I don't think he sees it that clearly. Um, I don't think he sees it that clearly. But um, and Hugo, as you say, he just said that his foresight is limited. Exactly, exactly. Um, Frodo is going to remember this when he meets Faramir, right? He is going to he's going to tell Faramir that Elrond foresaw his him Faramir Faramir's help, right? Um, uh, but um, but foresight like this is a legitimate thing, and it's certainly true. Now again, it's not super specific, right? Um, but remember that he started off by spending three sentences apologizing for the fact that he doesn't have anything more specific than this, right? But he is going to tell him what he what he can see. Um, and that sentence is simply, it's a straight-up future tense sentence. This will happen. It's foretelling. That's exactly, I mean, there's no two ways about it. Um, I will send out messages such as I can contrive. So there was my force, my foreseeing. Not much, I know, pretty pitiful, but hey, doing the best I can here, uh, under the shadow. Um, but here's also what I can do. I can do some things to help you too, not just foreseeing. I'm going to send out messages to those whom I know in the wide world. So I'll try, right? I, I I've got some contacts along your route, and I'm going to try to. I'll, I'll warn them, you know, um, hopefully they might be able to help, but don't count on it. So perilous are the lands now become that some may well miscarry. My messengers might not make it there. Um, or you might beat them. So, you know, doing what I can do. Um, yeah, now... I see several of you talking about the Balrog. I do not think that Elrond foresees the Balrog. I know it's tempting to think of the Balrog because of the whole shadow thing, but I think it's a different shadow. And um, I don't think... I'm pretty sure Elrond does not see the Balrog coming. Or even the fact that they're going to pass through Moria. That is not part of Plan A. They've made Plan A. Um, and that is not Plan A. Um, yeah. <laughs> Ray suggests Frodo might just say, stop trying to cheer me up, Elrond. It's not working. It's not working. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, I agree with those of you who are suggesting that Moria is definitely under a shadow, right? Um, 
And yeah, it's true. Galadriel doesn't even know that there's a Balrog living there, right? So nobody can see into Moria. Um, but um, but yeah, there's no question that he's referring to Sauron's shadow. Um, that's why it's creeping. The um, um, uh, the yeah, we'll get to how does Galadriel not know? Um, it's actually pretty easy, I think. But anyhow, um, uh, yeah, the shadow of the Balrog is not um, mobile, right? It's uh, it's been static for some time. Um, there is a shadow in the dark pit, right, in the black pit, uh, but it's uh, it's not creeping anywhere. It's uh, it's uh, a pretty sedentary shadow. Um, yeah. Okay. Uh, is there any evidence that any of his messages get through? We know that Galadriel has heard messages, but I, I think it's pretty clear she's heard messages before this. He's already sent messages to Galadriel. Um, but, um, yeah. Um, okay. We should stop. It's super late. I apologize. I had my technical difficulties at the beginning, so I started even later than usual. Uh, I apologize for that. But yeah, so let's stop here uh, and maybe we'll pick up on the last couple thoughts there about this pass. I'm not, I'm not 100% convinced we've totally finished this, but we've come pretty close. Um, so um, let's... Um, uh, yeah, Sarah, Sarah says, I still think Elrond sounds more like a fortune cookie here. Yeah, no, Sarah, you're right. He totally does. He totally does. Um, that's what happens. You know, when Elrond is trying to foretell under the shadow, you know, you end up with fortune cookie. It's the best he can do, right? Um, he wanted to give him something non-fortune cookie, but, you know, nothing else he could do. Um, anyway, all right. But we're going to stop. Then I'm going to let folks go to sleep, but we have our field trip still coming up. So we're going to shift to field trip mode. Thank you guys for joining us for our book discussion tonight. Uh, and... We're gonna we're gonna do the field trip. All right. And we'll probably return to the um, shadow next time. All right. Yeah, some fun stuff there. Good evening. Good evening. All right. So same spot. Back to going to bed. Uh yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, and by the same magnet, we still have no uh, milestone, so we gotta stable master it again. Just wait a few weeks. <laughs> hey! Hey! <sighs> wow. I'll get everyone else when I get there, I guess. So, yeah, interesting... Lost you there for a second, Valori. Hmm. Uh oh. Oh dear. She's still on Discord. Okay. 
So I, I didn't lose Discord or something, so. Nope, it's there. Hmm, I wonder if she can hear me. Well, um, I don't know. Her green thing is not lighting up, so. Okay. Yep, all right. Valori fell under the shadow, says Ardent Crayon. That is, let us hope not. Because apparently you can't hear things under the, th things are apparently silent as well as dark under the shadow then. I suppose. It's a very stifling shadow. Apparently so. Okay. Greetings. I'm not really sure why there's no forehearing of things, JJ. There's lots of foretelling and foreseeing, uh, but there's no forehearing. I agree. No one ever forehears anything. So, Lady Lakata, I have a theory that um, there is an instance of foresmelling, uh, in a sense. In a sense. Uh, the, um, uh, I think that the smell of elves that Bilbo detects at the edge of Rivendell is a foresmelling uh, of uh, elven home to come. That's my theory. But, uh, you know, it may or may not be true. Okay, everybody, uh, looks like we lost Valori. She just fell offline. Uh, if oh, you're dear. in the raid, drop raid, and I will start a new one, please. Oh, yeah, she's link lost. Oh, dear. Maybe her power went out or something. Unfortunate. Hello, stable master. Okay, Drangle. It's true. Um, uh, what does Elven Home smell like? Emily, hang on. I can tell you that. Um, hang on a second. Yeah, I'll do it here. I'll look cookies. it up in my cumbrous old fashion. Nope, it's not cookies. It's not cookies. Hmm. Here, wait a second. It takes too long to look things up in paper books. Okay, oh wait, sorry, I gotta drop out of the raid, right? Yes, please, so I can invite you. Okay. Um. Huh. There's no way to do that on the menu, right? I'm sorry, say again? There's no way to do that on the menu, right? Um, no, you right-click your character yeah, portrait. Yeah, I know. And I was trying in. to do it without right-clicking. But fine. Is that misbehaving again? Well, no. I, I have figured out why. I just It's just a nuisance. So, okay. It's, no, never mind. I got it. I don't usually bother with the solution to the 
right-clicking issue on Tuesday nights. Copy but here that. we are. Got it. Um, okay, I remember what I was doing. Um, yeah, hunting through to try to find a particular passage is uh, what I always find annoying to do in a paper book. But I, I can tell you exactly what it smells like in just a second. Right invite incoming. Right, got it. Okay, here it is. The wind in when the wind is in the west in Numenor. It seemed to many that it was filled with a fragrance, fleeting but sweet, heart-stirring, as of flowers that bloom forever in undying meads and have no names on mortal shores. That's what it smells like. Pretty, pretty sure. Pretty sure that's what it smells like. I still say it smells like cookies. Don't oh, so. here we go. Hey, yeah, she's Lori. back. You're back. We thought you uh, lost your internet or something. I did. I, we had a blackout. Really? Yeah. yeah. That's what it sounded like. Let me know when you're back in game. I'll, I'll add you to the new raid. Thanks. Appreciate it. Man, I was going to wax, wax philosophical on the properties of seeing the future and everything. We don't have time now, probably. <laughs> well, we can come back to it. But we're, we're going to actually, yeah, why don't you go ahead while we... Because I wanted to get back up where we could see the lie of the land. Mm -hmm. and, well, uh, uh, yeah, basically, you're, you're asking why people are so not willing to believe that Elrond has the gift of foresight. And I think yeah. it's just been, in, in fiction, it's been a, a, a rather uh, dangerous plot device in, in literature. It's one of those things where it's either too powerful or not powerful enough. Uh, mm -hmm. And it... it, uh, it, it Either it, there's no set rules, and um, very often all it does is spoil the plot. Like yeah, you know, and you're many, right. Like movies that we've been watching where we have a prophecy, and it's just like, oh, thanks, you've just given me a a roadmap for the rest of the book that you're going to follow exactly. Or you've got to find a reason to make that prophecy cryptic and misunderstandable. Yeah, and even um, then, it feels like you're shoehorning your characters into it. Yep. Yeah. So, no, it's it's and I mean, we can see here, honestly, in this sentence that we were just talking about, we can see Tolkien basically kind of confronted with that same issue. Right. Um, mm -hmm. You know, him having to uh, uh, explain why it is now, you know, he didn't have to even go there. Right. You know, he didn't have to say that Elrond had foresight. Um, and yet he does he does seem to want you know, Tolkien does seem to want to have it both ways, right? Um, to yeah. both have Elrond have foresight and yet have Elrond not be able to just, you know, tell him everything that's uh, that's happening. Mm -hmm. But uh, but honestly, the gift of foresight only works as a narrative device when it's broken. Right. That's the only time it ever comes in useful is when it doesn't work. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay, it's not useful to well, but it only drives the plot of it. Right. Well, but not exactly failing, though, because, again, I, I, I don't think it ever fails uh, in 
in Tolkien, certainly in The Lord of the Rings, I don't think that like a foretelling ever fails. We see several of them and they all come true. Um, True, but we normally hear about them after the fact, like at the end of The Hobbit, we're told, oh, by the way, you were part of the prophecy. And it's like, what? Right. What? Yes. But no, 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 no. I'm Probably thinking, I mean, I like, like my prophecies. Right. That's we're going like to, right. We're going to get a couple, what, retroactive? Yeah. Um, we're going to get a couple more examples of foresight and foretelling um, in this chapter before we're done with it. Um so it's definitely a thing that happens. And of course, we have famously when, you know, Amir's comment on it, you know, Aragorn's, um, you know, uh, you know, promise that he and uh, he and Amir will meet again, though all the um, uh, all the, you know, the hordes of Mordor may lie between them. Um, so. Those things are all, they all happen, right? You know, and uh, Amir says, I knew not then that you were a man foresighted. Um, well, now he does, right? Because he is. Um, Aragorn is a man foresighted. Um, but unlike Elrond, he doesn't seem to be in control of it, right? He can't just, he can't just do it. Um, uh, yeah. But for me, as Bujim, you're right. Frodo is going to be, is going to straight up pull an Elrond later on with Sam. He's going to foretell his kids and their names, right? Um, now you could say it's a self-fulfilling prophecy as once he tells Sam what his kids' names are going to be, Sam is certainly going to name his kids that no matter what happens, right? So, um, but uh, but still, nevertheless. Um, so I'm just getting out towards generally where we were last time. Uh, we're Drangle, right? Oh, yeah. Yes. Um, Does anybody are, have a summoning horn? Can summon yeah, Linus? Yeah, are you, are you going to be able to oh, make I'm it up there. here? Yeah, yeah but are there. you going to be able to make it up alone? Um, I can try. <laughs> yeah, I guess you could just kite them. Uh, uh, yeah, yeah. Everybody, be ready. Right, you're going to, you're gonna, you're going to come though. Oh, all the there we go. Though all the hordes of Gundabad yeah, are are, in, yep, are yep, following yep. I'm you. I'm here. I'm here. Okay, good. Yep, I see. Excellent. You. There we go. Yep. Okay. All right. Somebody res JJ's green stand, please. Oops. Thank you. All right. So. I'm really interested that these guys are not aggroing on to me more than they are. Oh, there's a pew pew somewhere. Yeah. Okay. What's hitting? Hey, man. Buzz off. I'm not bugging you. Where are you? I'm just minding my own business. Stop shooting me, you annoying things. Okay. Can oh, somebody rest Corey, please? Oh. Oh, bother. Oh, I'm down, uh, moving out towards that promontory that... Okay, uh, I see you. Yeah, yeah, we were on last time. Unfortunately, I'm not on a high elf, so I can't res you. Oh, it's fine. Actually, I can just revive. I'm good. Okay. So, 
I want to get back out to this vantage point that we were looking at last time because I like it. Because from here we can see all the things. We can see yep. the ruins, the different levels of the ruins of Gundabad. We can see not only the Angmarim city that we explored, but the one that we didn't across the way. Mm -hmm. yep. We can see the dwarf ruins perched on mountaintops uh, that lie, you know, off to the east of our current position. And we can see the Gundabad extensions. So first, so what we want to do this evening, if we can, is come to some final conclusions about Gundabad now that we've been exploring it for some time and looking around it. And what I want to conclude is an overall timeline, as I've said. Can we piece together what exactly has happened here over the last, you know, 10,000 years of the sun or so? Um, so, first, if we begin with the premise that Gundabad under Durin came first, which seems safe, right? It being Durin and presuming that this... Um, Lake here was one of the yet untasted wells that uh, he discovered. Um, he came here first. So, what do we think is the original? Do we think that? Because I, I mean, I, I'm thinking the marble facade with all the windows was Durin originally. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Probably. The, the more barracks looking one. Yeah. And then I'm trying to decide. Because um, it looks like it's kind of expanded, right? We have the more stripy stonework and stuff on the bottom floor of the main buildings back here, right? Yeah. So that seems to have been probably part of the original style. However... Doesn't it look like this ledge that we're on and then all the terraces underneath down to that like uh, weird external hall thing, you know, stable hall or where, whatever it was that we were speculating where the uh, where the Oliphant was down there. Um, mm -hmm. And then you look over on the north side and we've got this whole big wing stretching out right yeah. to the, you know, to the east from the edge whereas you've got like the what looks like the original edge up above the mountain right and then you've got all this so it just it looks to me like it ex ex expanded over time and the expansion yeah. was all done in that other style right the the you know the stripy stonework style that we see down at the bottom mm -hmm. right yeah. but this it just kind of looks like uh dwarvish stone work which has just kind of grown and expanded over time. Um, well, yeah, and that makes sense. We we talked about this possibly being a holy site, and what you, what do you do when you have your little, your little old sort of earthen hut and stuff that's of importance, holy relic? You built up big stuff around it. Right, right, exactly. And some of the things, like some of those spires, might be new. I don't know, but um, okay. So you've got those now. The other thing that we saw was the reconstruction effort here. 
Mm-hmm. You know, we've got like, for instance, that um, spire that's okay. It's not do anything, I guess. It's like do southwest of us. Um, uh, you know, right off to the you know to the right hand side when you're facing out over the lake. Um, you know, we see the scaffolding around that one spire, straight right near us over there, and we can see uh, several more. Mm-hmm. over on the other side over there. So there was some dwarvish reconstruction work. Now, we definitely saw that the presence of the orcs and trolls post-dates the dwarvish reconstruction efforts because some of those are now decorated with bones and skulls. Exactly. There's um, a game lore that might explain that. Okay. You well, seen. hang on. Yeah, I'll, we'll see. I, I, I want to draw conclusions of what we can from mm-hmm. appearances, and then we can always see later on how accurate our conclusions were. Um, <laughs> so, okay. So that seems, so we've got the original dwarves, a significant gap long enough for much of it to fall to ruins, but not all of it by any means, and then a, an attempt to reconstruct, you know, reoccupation by the dwarves, and a reconstruction effort. And then after that, a an occupation. A, the most recent thing, because they're still here, right? The occupation by the goblins and, uh, and orcs. But where do the Angmarim come into this, and how does it fit in to the Angmarim um, chronology that we were building while we were in Angmar? Because we see both kinds, right? We can see what we were characterizing in Angmar as the old and the new Angmarim um, styles in the architect. We can, I, even from this distance right now, looking at that one across the river, we can see both, right? You can see the, the, uh, the sort of gray and white or black and white um, older walls down there on the bottom left and the towers on the on the on the right hand side of it as well like the the oldest walls of that enclosure are in the old but then the that big old tower in the middle with the fish hooks on top is the new style yes so that would suggest that after now old angmar is still third age so it's still pretty recent by, you know, Durin-related timestamps, right? So the Angmarim, the old people of Angmar, could easily have come through here. And we know how, you know, geographically speaking, you know, going to the map for a second, Gundabad is right... I mean, this is Angmar up here in the northern part of Eriador, and Gundabad is right here at the top of the mountain. So, I mean, it's... This is almost a boundary uh, of Angmar. So it makes all kinds of sense that the Angmarim would expand through here. Um, uh, so I think we have to assume the dwarves yeah. are not here at that point. I think so too. I think so too. So that the and we also know, of course, that Durin during Durin's own lifetime relocated to Moria, right? Um, yeah. Now that doesn't necessarily mean that all the dwarves came with him. Um, you know, most likely some stayed here in Gundabad and um, it would make all kinds of sense for them to be, especially since we see in game, at least we see lots of evidence of dwarvish activity, the whole length of the Misty Mountains, right? Mm -hmm. 
Yes. Um, Moria, obviously. But above that, from the, what we saw in the Misty Mountains, uh, what's the name of that place? with The raid place with the zombie dragon thing um, in the Misty Mountain region. Heligrad. Heligrad, oh, thank yes. you. Yeah, from Heligrad, which we see has all of the, you know, Longbeardian um, uh, indicators on it, to what we've been seeing as we've gone up the the Vale of Anduin, right, from the Gladdenfields north. We've seen all these dwarf bridges and things coming out. But some of it, the dwarf roads that are crossing the mountains, but some of it clearly dwarf stuff that was emerging from the mountains. And what's more, we have seen multiple, what looks like evidence of multiple kindreds, of dwarves, um, the blue, um, you know, the blue stone of uh, Sundergrot, right, um, was different from along of the Longbeardian stuff, but kind of similar to what we see at those dwarvish outposts across the way, right? Mm-hmm. Um, We've also seen evidence. There's two age of Angmarum, yeah, one with the first occupation, and then after the fall of uh, Sauron's first reign, after that, they sort of sort of, you know, went back to their own devices mostly and left a lot of the, you know, the evil doing. Uh, right. they, they put the black robes in the closet for a while, you know. Right. So would it be safe to to theorize then that mm-hmm. um, the kingdom of the dwarvish kingdom of Gundabad thrived and apparently grew for a long time Um we have these other dwarf structures which look like they're, you know, these other dwarf, ancient dwarf outposts, uh, you know, the welcome, uh, the welcome center and, and, and others right along the way, um, mm-hmm. which seem to be, and from here, it just seems so clear that those are designed for communication with Gundabad, right? That you, they can see what is down the other side of that cliff on the far side of that hill. From here, from Gundabad, you can only see basically to the edge of the cliff, right? Yeah. Um, but then they have, you know, folks posted out there on those hilltops above the cliff, and from there they can see a lot down to the south, right? And from like, there they could the relay the, signals. A lot of the way to the river, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, so they can see far south down the... They can, from using those as, like, relay posts, um, uh, they can... Stay in t- the they being the doors of Gundabad, uh, could stay pretty well in touch with a lot of what's happening in the whole northern Vale of Anduin. So all that seems to make sense. And if so, if all of that was this, you know, we imagine like the heyday of um, the dwarf culture here at Gundabad when the full expansions had occurred. And the, <laughs> sorry, a little ironic talking about expansions of Gundabad under the current game circumstances, but um, uh, then and also those outposts down there, right? When all of those were fully functioning and at their peak, um, had had to have been relatively early, right? Like, uh, yeah, you know, first and second age uh, kind of timing. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there was sort of. probably a decline because there usually is in Tolkien, right? Or Post maybe Moria, at, I should think. Right. As Moria grew greater and greater, maybe more and more people left here. And so, um, you know, it began to fall into disrepair. Then at the very least, with the rise of Angmar, things went south, right? I mean, things, you know, there was pressure from Angmar and it was taken, though 
as we were suggesting, they didn't want to actually live here, right? They didn't want to actually occupy this fortress for whatever reason. They built the new fortresses, one immediately down there, which would, you know, the one right down there that we were exploring would have been closest to, because apparently like the way to Angmar is through there, right? They'd be coming out mm-hmm. um, from the other side of Gundabad uh, to here. So there's one right here, like the, you know, you'd come straight through here and you'd go straight down to the Angmar fortress, the Angmar fortress down there. And there's another one on the other side of the lake on the other side of the river over there, which would have controlled the approaches um, as we saw, we were walking right under that thing in order to get here uh, from, yeah. you know, from the south. And, so and the city, the, the city south is uh, the one controlling the the lake. I think they, they actually go down to the lake and they would control the waterways at that point. Right. Sure. Sure. So old Angmar comes in and whether or not there were many dwarves still living here by then or not, clearly not anymore once the Angmarim conquer it. But then Angmar falls. Right. Old Angmar mm-hmm. falls. And there's going to be quite some time between when old Angmar fell and when new Angmar, you know, old Angmar falls in what, 1974. Um, mm-hmm. And um, uh, that's the battle at Fornost. Um, so um, it's been a thousand years. Angmar has only recently, new Angmar has only been recently rising again. Um, so it's, um, uh, you know, you got it. You got it. A good thousand years, or approaching a thousand years, in between, right? So, during that thousand years in between, presumably, would be the time that the new, that the dwarf reconstruction was attempted, right? Sometime yeah. after the fall of Angmar. So Angmar falls. By that time, Moria is gone too, right? So there yeah. must have been some intrepid dwarves. From you know, like the Iron Hills, or or from yeah, I was the say Iron Hill Gray Mountains, sure. right? Who say, "Hey, look, uh, it's time to go back to Heligrad, or not Heligrad." Now I've got it in my head. Uh, it's time to go back to Gundabad, right? Because now that Angmar's gone, there's no, you know, we there's just gonna be some, you know, goblins from the Misty Mountains, and we can kick them out, and let's retake Gundabad. So they come back and they start rebuilding, but they obviously don't get that far. I mean, there's still a whole lot of ruins and very little that seems completed as far as the reconstruction. So they seem to have... the outer exterior on top of the old stuff, though. That was one theory we might have had on that. Right, possibly, that, that they nice. did they did clean up the, those facades and stuff? Or, or just add some of these outer shells, like the courtyards and the extra stairs and stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, maybe, maybe. Embellished a um, bit. Yeah, possibly so. So it is possible to imagine them having been... Because it, it, it would be a job of work. To rebuild this place. It's huge. Um, hmm. And we don't know how numerous were the dwarves who came back here, right? So we could easily speculate that a reasonably small number of dwarves returned here, worked industriously, possibly for several generations, um, and that this place still looks as good as it does because of their work, right? Um, oh, but yeah. they and that they would have started with the main core of it, right, and then expanded outwards. So that's why all this outer stuff is still all jumbled and run down. Yeah. Then New Angmar rises again, and the old and the the new dwarves are kicked back out because Angmar has returned, and their allies, the the orcs, come back up too, and so the Angmarim return and they rebuild their fortresses, and. The orcs and goblins who have come quite recently, 
apparently, have moved back in. Now, we don't know. I don't have much to say about this because this is clearly fourth age now that we're in. So I don't know exactly what's been going on, you know, very recently here. Um, well, from what I gather with all the dwarves in the uh, welcoming center, they're set on probably taking all this back. Yeah, exactly. It's still a, that's still an ongoing project. The reconquest, as obviously they've not made much headway yet, just from looking around here with all of the critters who were killing us on the way up. Um, so that I think... It still leaves, I mean, there's still some holes in this. I mean, there's still a lot of, like, you know, a a lot of questions that it's hard to answer. How long was Durin here um, before he moved off to Moria? That's a little doubtful. Um, How long were the dwarves in occupation after he left? Did they all just leave with him? It's possible. Was there a a dwarf presence here for quite some time? Um, uh, how big was the structure to begin with and how did it get so big? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Was that all built under Durin before they left? Or, you know, again, did it have a heyday in the post-Durin era? Um, who exactly were the dwarves who came back and started the reconstruction and how long were they at it? Um, uh, what happened? I mean, I guess we can just understand that because we know that the orcs have always been infesting the Misty Mountains, you know, that... Um, they, there was just a, a large native orc presence, you know, even between evil overlords, right? So that uh, it would have been challenging for the uh, dwarves to be able to regain this even prior to the rise of Angmar. Um, mm-hmm. You know, it's, but but again, we're still looking at a, a pretty wide gap of time when it was probably left um, just derelict, presumably. Um when Moria was in its heyday. But, so yeah, that's a little bit uncertain. Um, mm-hmm. That's a little uncertain, but, um, but that seems to pretty much hold together. Does, it, does, that, does that seem to make sense? Yeah, I think that makes sense as a timeline with what information we have. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I do wonder about that other Angmarum place and that big statue in, near the river. Oh no, that was the statue we came up to. That was the yeah, Drengel. yeah. It's the Drengel statue. That's the Ozymandias dwarf there. Yeah, I guess. Um, yeah. Okay, so you see, my theory now is going to be that that statue, the uh, the vast and trunkless legs of stone over there, are going is built by the new, the restoration dwarfs. Mm-hmm. Um, built by the restoration dwarfs. And it probably depicted the dwarf who was the leader of the expedition to retake Gundabad. That's my theory. And the reason, that's my, the reason that's my theory is that we have not seen a singular statue that looks anything like that anywhere around in here. That's I don't see well, any evidence that old Gundabad was decorated with any statues like that. And you just look even from here. Local stone and none of this over here is local stone. Exactly. Look at how different the stonework is, even from here. As you see, yeah, exactly as you're saying, the the kind of stone it's made out of is different from anything we see up here in the actual city. Um, 
In fact, we haven't seen, somebody was pointing out, we don't see dwarf faces anywhere, right? And I agree. We don't get any statuary oh, yeah. of dwarves. Oh. Um, we, we, whether we got it, it be in the center. like waterfall beards or whatever it is, we haven't, uh, we haven't seen that. Now, you're right, JJ, we haven't been inside. So maybe there will yeah, be yeah. some statues inside, and I, I wouldn't be surprised. But we haven't seen, we don't have any reason to think that that's, that, that kind of statue that we see down there is an architectural feature of Gundabad, certainly not externally. So, so that's why I think, and the destruction of that, the wearing down of that statue does suggest that the efforts of the restoration dwarves stopped some time ago. That's true. Uh, the question being what Durin built, it probably, what Durin built would have been made out of local stone. And if this is all imported stuff, it was definitely put on later. Hmm. The marble, you mean? Yes, all the marble exteriors, all the stripy, um, all, all the all the stripy stone, all the mosaic tiles, um, all of the the jasper and and the malachite Perhaps. and all these little accents here. They was these were all brought in later from the gray stone that was already here. Yeah, perhaps, perhaps. I mean, of course. Um, uh, yeah, in uh, um, in fairness, uh, there seems to be an absolute dedication in the Lotro world to building vast stone edifices with imported stone literally everywhere across Middle-earth. Um, you know, that, like we were just talking about this in, uh, in Mordor during my uh, marathon last weekend. Um, all those Gondorian fortresses, which look so typically Gondorian because they're made out of Gondorian stone that you can recognize from miles away, right, in the distance. Mm-hmm. Um, but obviously, like, that stone had to have been imported into Mordor from some wildly impractical distance. Um, when there's all that perfectly good stone just standing right there, right? Um, oh, the Carolinchian and the and the Rudauran stuff always seem to be made out of that same brown stone that was always around. Yeah, the, oh, some of the Arnorian stuff did seem to be local. It's true, um, but um, anyway, yeah. No, I agree, JJ. It is very true that uh, the Mordor stone could have been morally questionable building material. Um, and you're right; it's not perfectly good stone. It couldn't possibly be in Mordor. Um, good stone. Yeah. Yes, it's true. Stone that is impregnated with evil, uh, uh, corrupted stone. True. Just like that weird purple metal on. We keep seeing an angmar. Right, yeah, yeah, like the fishhook metal and stuff. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. No, it just, I, I am suddenly reminded that the 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 Morgul blade was supposed to be made out of a weird metal. Yep, yep, we exactly. Think that's the same stuff. Exactly. Well, that seems to be the idea. Um, all right. Well, this seems a workable theory. So, if my theory is correct, that that statue is like was the statue of the you know maybe the leader of the restoration dwarves um then it's it does suggest that the restoration efforts were not just put a halt to 50 years ago you know but um several centuries ago but in the course of a few centuries that statue could totally have tumbled over and be left in its current state especially if it had some help which there's every reason to believe that it did you know, that the new Angmarim and their, um, you know, uncultured followers came and knocked it down, you know. 
Philistines. Uh, so it's very possible. But all right. Well, it's super late. Sorry, I've gotten I'm doing everything late here tonight because I started late. But uh, uh, we should let everybody go. But next time, um, let's um, meet at Anat Kerfu again. But in well, wait a second. There's a side road up to Wormsgraf, right? If we go up that road. Yeah, I, I was looking at it too. Yeah. Yeah. It looks like it's a road that goes up there. Yeah, so maybe let's go down to a, a, a Zudramdan and then just go up mm-hmm. the road from there. E- either way, it doesn't matter. Either one. And then we'll go up the road and see if we can get up into Wormsgraf up from that way. That would be fun to kind of loop yes. around that way. Um, and uh, Yeah, and then we'll be done here. And who knows? We are rapidly approaching Eregion. So, uh, um, and then, yeah, we'll get to, we'll get to pass that tower bridge, JJ, and see what that's all about. Cause I'm a little curious about that too. The bridge that extends from the Angmarim tower to the wall. I assume JJ, that's the one that you mean, right? That tower bridge. Um, yeah, we'll see if we can see what's up with that. But, um, yeah, I saw both Angmarim forts have them. It's curious, but all right. So we will explore over there next time. Thanks, everybody, for joining us. As always, I will be back next week. We should be home from Middlemoot, uh, assuming no disasters. So um, uh, thanks, everybody, for joining us, and I'll see you guys next week. Bye now.